This is Dr. Kurt Spindler from the Cleveland Clinic, and you're listening to another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. It's 2021. COVID-19 is still here. We amazingly have a vaccine out, and I am so thankful and grateful to the scientists who worked tirelessly to get it out, and I have had that opportunity to be a recipient of the vaccine. But despite these advances, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths have continued to surge. We've seen children's hospitals once again being used for overflow for adult patients being hospitalized with COVID. A disease at the start of this we all thought was not really affecting kids at all has proven us wrong. Fortunately, from a severity of illness or death standpoint from COVID, this has still been rare, but we've also seen cases of the condition we call MIS-C or the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that's been attributed to COVID. From a sports standpoint, we still have seen varying degrees of shutdowns or rescheduling of sports games and seasons around the country. Early on, there was great concern about COVID infection having a significant effect on the heart leading to myocarditis. This led to guidelines being developed by leading cardiologists around the country, including one of my guests today, regarding the need for screening prior to returning to sports participation. Today on the podcast, we're going to focus exclusively on the heart and the young athlete and COVID. What do we know a year later and where do we go from here? I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I have three pediatric cardiologists from around the country as my guests on the podcast today. Dr. Stephen Paradon is a professor of pediatrics and director of the Exercise Physiology Lab at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He has authored numerous articles and book chapters on the topic of the impact of congenital heart disease on exercise performance in children and adolescents. He has served as president of the North American Society for Pediatric Exercise Medicine. He also was one of the authors on an expert analysis published by the American College of Cardiology in July of 2020 on returning to play after coronavirus infection focused on pediatric age athletes. Dr. Kendra Ward is an associate professor of pediatrics at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. She is the creator and director of the Lurie Children's Cardiac Rehabilitation Program, as well as the director of the Cardiopulmonary Exercise Lab and Exercise Medicine Program, as well as the director of the Preventive Cardiology Program. Dr. William Orr is an assistant professor of pediatrics and director of the Exercise Physiology Lab at St. Louis Children's Hospital. His current research focuses on the value of exercise testing in pediatrics and program development and introducing new technology for testing. He has served on a task force with me in St. Louis as our pediatric cardiology consultant that helped provide guidance for allowing for safe return to sports for young athletes during this pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Mark, for, thank you uh, for having me. Us. I'd love to just start off with hearing from each of you about what you've been seeing in your clinics related to COVID, either just in general or if you have anything specific to athletes. And we'll, we'll start with William. Sure. Thanks. I see a spectrum of patients who are as sick to the patients that are hospitalized with the MISC, which we'll kind of talk a little bit more about, and then even the patients that may have had the more mild to moderate symptoms. As you could probably imagine, there are a lot of pediatric patients that are testing positive for COVID and needing additional evaluation that maybe their pediatrician is not comfortable with doing, so are sending to cardiology. So I am not able to see 100% of every COVID-positive patient needing clearance for sports in this area, but I do see the majority of the patients that were hospitalized with COVID or with the very severe forms 
And then they try to put all the patients in with me. So a lot of the patients that were hospitalized already have establishment with cardiology as part of our consulting team. And so it's an easy segue to follow up with us. And then the other patients I see are usually the moderate patients that have some form of lingering symptoms, you know, maybe some shortness of breath, maybe a little bit of chest pain at rest or with exertion, or maybe the ones that are just a little anxious and are varsity level high school athlete, or even I've seen a few collegiate level that are home for the holidays come in just for some evaluation. My experience has been similar to that. I am also an electrophysiologist, so I do tend to get the patients who've had arrhythmias during their hospitalization referred to me or to my partners for follow-up. Also seeing a fair number of the high school athletes or even middle school and sometimes elementary school athletes whose pediatricians have either screened them and believe they need to be seen by cardiology or whose parents are pretty nervous and really would like cardiology evaluation prior to their child returning to sports. And Steve? I think certainly our inpatient population is very similar to what both Kendra and William were describing. We do see some of those. But I have to say that as far as Patients who have not been hospitalized and have had relatively mild or asymptomatic disease, we're not seeing a lot of those in our outpatient cardiology clinics. And I think a lot of that reflects the fact that early on, we were fairly aggressive about setting up a relationship with both our sports medicine and our relatively large primary care network in the Philadelphia area to set up protocols for screening these patients. And so I think we've seen significantly less of those than some other places around the country because the general pediatric teams are handling them much better and allaying a lot of the concerns that both the patients and the parents have. Sounds like you guys obviously all have a somewhat similar experience, which is good. And that'll help us as we kind of lead our discussion a little bit later. But on this podcast before, we've, we've covered COVID several times, and we've touched on the heart with most of those episodes that we've talked about. I've had Drs. Jonathan Kim, Matt Martinez, Ian Law from Cardiology to discuss their expert opinion publications that have been released previously. Ian, who is a pediatric cardiologist, was on the podcast early on, and there was still at that time a lot of speculation, a lot of anecdotal reports of what we were seeing from a cardiac standpoint that may be relevant to athletes, particularly the pediatric athlete. In July, Steve was part of an expert panel with Dr. Peter Dean and Dr. Lanier Jackson. That was the first, and to my knowledge, the only pediatric-specific cardiac guidance regarding COVID published to date. And there were three quick takes that were published in that, and I'm going to go through these and we'll talk about these individually. So the first was returning to sports participation after a COVID infection will be a significant question posed to pediatric providers in the coming months. I think that definitely is the case. Most pediatric patients will be able to be easily cleared for participation without extensive cardiac testing, but pediatric providers should ensure patients have fully recovered and have no evidence of myocardial injury. And we'll talk about that quite a bit. And the approach to sports participation clearance in pediatric patients should differ from the approach in adult patients, which I certainly agree with, and I think we all will. So let's start with the first take. Steve, uh, is the return to sports participation still a significant question, or do you think we've learned enough about it? Well, I think it still is a significant question. And while I'm hopeful based on the data from both pediatric and adult studies that the cardiac involvement is going to be in the athletes is going to be significantly less severe than we feared based on the results from the older hospitalized patients. I still think there are some unknowns associated with this. 
I, I think we have to have at least some degree of caution when we say that we're out of the woods here and that kids are doing well. I think the short answer is I think that that will, in fact, be the case. And I think that we're not going to run into significant cardiac issues, especially in children and adolescents. But we ought to take that with a grain of salt. And just following up on that, in terms of the unknowns, are you kind of referring more towards what this may mean long term for somebody, since obviously we don't have that data or kind of still in the short term period that we're talking about? I think more the former rather than the latter. I think that at least from what we're seeing in the short term is, at least to my knowledge, we've seen very little in the way of acute issues with either children or adolescents who have returned to play having had any significant cardiovascular problems. I'd be interested to see what both William and Kendra think. But certainly, I have not seen it, nor have I heard anecdotally of any significant problem. You know, I would tend to agree with Steve. You know, I think originally when this first came out, people were very cautious and and conservative as far as some of their algorithms. And I do still feel that there is some importance of having some clearance by the general pediatrician. And, And we've done the same similar thing that Steve had mentioned in his area, in our area. So we have tried to let the pediatrician remain the medical home for these patients and then refer the patients that they feel necessary. And I agree. I mean, I think what we're seeing, and we're maybe starting to get a little more comfortable with it, that the patients that are asymptomatic or even mildly symptomatic aren't making it to our clinic, the pediatric cardiology clinic, to get additional testing. And so they are making it back to play without having extensive testing. I agree. I have not heard of a lot of stuff in the media or the news that you know patients are are having issues on the field or or playing sports. So how about the point about being easily cleared without extensive cardiac testing? Are any of you seeing a desire or an increase in more advanced testing from pediatricians or parents just in general? You know, I know in the sports medicine world in general there's a lot of demand from families to do testing that may or may not be warranted. We'll start with William. Yeah, I think in general, the pediatricians and the parents have a healthy fear of COVID because of of all the hype that has gone into the news and everything they've heard about it. And so I have seen a handful of patients who the parents just felt uncomfortable with the, the performance of the patient or the patient maybe tried to go back to play a little bit early and they just didn't feel like they could exercise the same way they were able to before which was not surprising. And so they have just a lot of concerns. And so they don't necessarily come to us with a list of tests that they would like us to to perform, such as an echo or a cardiopulmonary exercise test or even a cardiac MRI. But I think they all just are looking for some reassurance from a cardiologist that everything is safe and that they can go back and and these symptoms are okay and are not going to lead to some sudden cardiac arrest while exercising. And then most of them usually are reassured by that and have not heard back from anybody. Another big part of this is the shared decision-making and having that discussion. These are not quick appointments. You're having to discuss what is known, what isn't known, even in the totally asymptomatic patients, You know what some of research has shown. And everyone seems to be very receptive of this and, and understand. And I always give them things to be concerned about and reasons to call back. And majority of the time, I don't have to bring them back for additional evaluation. And Kendra, do you think history and physical exam are enough for most people? You know, I know in the sports medicine world, there's, and this, we're not going to use this as podcast as kind of this debate, but as far as screening EKGs in general and their utility for our young athletes, but 
do you think that just doing screening questions and, and doing a physical exam would be enough for, for screening for most kids? I think it depends a little bit on what that patient's coronavirus infection, what their symptoms were and what their course was. So I think for we've also partnered with our general pediatricians in the area and have done some presentations with them about sort of how they should triage patients before they end up seeing us. And that's been very successful. I think young children, especially those who are under 12 years of age who were asymptomatic and got tested maybe because they had sniffles or they had some sort of exposure, I think being evaluated by their primary pediatrician is a perfect way for them to be evaluated before they return to play. If the athletes have had more symptoms, moderate symptoms, you know, severe fevers, or especially if they've been hospitalized, then I think there is more of a role for other testing. But again, going back to shared decision-making and looking at the the baseline severity of their disease, I think that's going to guide what we do. How about those that are totally asymptomatic? They may have tested positive, may have had very mild short-lived symptoms. Do any of you feel that screening is actually needed at all, even by a primary care provider? And, and we've wrestled with this in Missouri, and, and William can testify to this. Where If you have any athlete who is in high school level needing the clearance after an evaluation, they have to get that evaluation by their primary care provider once they've tested positive. That, that's anybody. I'm starting to think this may be a little bit of overkill, but just being around athletes for a long enough period of time and knowing that many of them want to hide their injuries or their illnesses just to continue to play and unfortunately, that's the attitude of a good percentage of people still in my state where mask wearing is still a battle at times. And also knowing some families who intentionally are not cooperating with contact tracing or even disclosing that their child was positive so they can continue to play. So I'm concerned about a kid pushing through something they shouldn't. So anybody have thoughts on this? And we'll start with Kendra. I fall into the camp of people who think these patients need to be or these athletes need to be evaluated. I have a large population of really competitive athletes who I see in my practice, and they really want to return to play. They do sometimes, maybe on purpose, maybe not on purpose, don't discuss their their symptoms and may seem healthier to their parents. And then when you actually ask them very specific questions, they actually have had some symptoms. I think they should be seen at least by their general pediatrician, but I do tend to be a little more conservative that way. I guess I would, I certainly would agree with Kendra. And I really think for two reasons. One, the point that I made earlier that, you know, we just don't know yet what's going to happen and what's, you know, six, 12 months down the line. And so erring on the side of caution is probably not a bad idea. The other thing that we're seeing a lot of that I think it's important important to differentiate the effects of COVID from the effects, uh, other general effects of the pandemic. We're seeing a large number of our patients who are repeat performers in our exercise lab for non-COVID issues such as channelopathies coming in with significantly decreased exercise capacity compared to their pre-COVID functioning most likely related to the amount of enforced sedentary time that these kids have had over the course of the last eight months or so. And I think we're also seeing a lot of that in our athletes who are now going back to play in the ones that have had COVID. They're coming in with decreased performance, and it's unclear whether it has anything at all to do with COVID or whether it has everything to do with the fact that for the last six months, they've been sitting at home and haven't been training. 
And I think we have a role in maybe helping to differentiate that. We're actually going to try to put together a study looking at our patients who we have testing both before and after the pandemic and try to get a measure of how much that has impacted on cardiovascular fitness. You know, I think with the numerous unknowns, being on the more conservative side, looking at the risk benefit of it's really easy for a patient to go in and just have a few questions and a physical exam done by the pediatrician when the alternative, if there is some catastrophic event, could lead to hospitalization or even death. One thing that I would like to kind of ask the rest of everybody on this discussion you know, Steve had mentioned some other effects of COVID causing some symptoms or some changes. I'm seeing a lot of patients that don't necessarily have any true manifestations from COVID, but they have a lot of anxiety from what they've heard and what they're scared of. So they'll go back and they may feel their heart pounding harder than they remember because now they are deconditioned or out of shape and they think that something bad's going to happen. And so there's this new level of anxiety that we're also having to kind of deal with in the pediatric cardiology world. And I'd be curious to hear if, if both Steve and Kendra are seeing a similar thing. I agree that I'm seeing a lot more anxiety and I'm seeing a lot of patients present to me with symptoms of tachycardia that they have noticed and they have then purchased sports watches or some other way to monitor their rhythm. And then they start sending me recordings of what their heart rates are. And I don't have any data before this started of what their heart rates used to be. So I don't know if they actually do have a higher heart rate than normal based on being deconditioned, based on what Steve was talking about earlier, because even our most athletic kids are much less active right now, or if this is related to anxiety. But I'm definitely hearing symptoms of palpitations a lot in a lot of the patients I see. And with further evaluation, not finding any significant arrhythmias. Again, these are not patients who have tested positive for COVID. These are just the patients I'm seeing in general in my cardiology clinics. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with both William and Kendra. I, I'm seeing the same thing. And the other thing that I'm also seeing, and I'd be interested to know whether anybody else is, a lot of nonspecific anxiety from the coaches where we're getting kids referred in by the coaches after they're told by their pediatricians that it's okay to go ahead and participate. And the coach says, I don't care that the pediatrician says that. I'm not going to let this athlete go back to participating until I get clearance from a cardiologist. It's interesting. I don't know. I, I don't. I haven't heard as much of that as far as the coach, at least not in my area, but that's where Missouri. So, uh, William, have you had any of that that you've seen from your clinic of coach request? Not a lot. If I have, maybe it wasn't known to me. I've had a lot of people come in either that just came straight to us or maybe their pediatrician saw the request and, and sent them straight to us. But unfortunately, you know, I hate when that happens because pediatrician should, and they probably do do more sports evaluation on a yearly routine basis and, and the coaches should trust their expertise. Kendra, are you seeing any of that in Chicago? You know, I was seeing a little bit of that early on, especially when the papers came out about the MRI findings. But recently, I haven't seen it that much. Now, we haven't had a significant amount of sports participation here. Um, a lot of our bigger schools are all remote, and a lot of sports aren't happening. So I don't know if that's going to change once things open up more. But I was definitely seeing more of that probably in late summer, early fall. 
We are going to take a quick break and we will continue our discussion on the heart and COVID in the young athlete. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcaster Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We are back, and I'm talking with doctors Paradon, Ward, and Orr, and we have been discussing concerns relating to the heart in the pediatric patient following COVID infection. The article from July also talked about the approach for kids being different than adults. In the updated guidelines that Dr. Kim was a part of, they used a cutoff age of 15 for their stratification. I pressed him on this a little bit because it didn't seem like there was a big scientific basis for that. More I got out of the answer from that was that their clinics, that was the lowest age that they would typically see as most of them were adult cardiologists. Dr. Kim is med-peds trained, but he frankly admitted that he mostly sees adults now. And it wasn't really a pediatric-focused document, so it wasn't really talked about beyond that. But in the article that Steve was involved with, the age of 12 was used for decision-making. And one of the arguments that raised my eyebrows a little bit was the argument of intensity of sport based on age. And I've certainly been around some younger club level athletes that I would argue have higher intensity levels than some of our older athletes in certain sports. And then there was also a statement made that assuming there was no clinical or laboratory findings suggesting myocardial involvement during the acute infection, before considering return to play, patients should be asymptomatic for at least two weeks. I think it's always hard in pediatrics when we use age to divide decision-making because of the significant variability and maturation we see. But I know we like to have a cutoff somewhere, but Steve, do you feel that we should still be using the age of 12 as a branch point in the algorithm and six months later from what we've learned and additional experience and time that, that the two-week time frame of being asymptomatic is still warranted, especially in light of some of the CDC changes? I think the answer to the first question is I think that that's probably a reasonable cutoff. And the reason that I say that is that while you're right that there are athletes that certainly below 12 that do participate at very intense levels, as a group, that population does not seem to have the degree of intensity 
that the late middle school on up group does. And if you look at their activity in terms of the aerobic component, the sustained amount of movement that they're doing, as I say, you know, look at 10-year-olds playing soccer and look at, you know, 15-year-olds playing soccer, the amount of sustained aerobic activity is quite different. But the most important point to me would be is if you look at the natural history of sudden cardiac death during athletics, it really falls about 85% between the 12 to 22-year-old decade. And the remaining 15% is almost all clustered in the 22 to 35-year-old range. Once you get below 12 years of age, the amount of sudden cardiac death that you see is really vanishingly low. And once you get below 10, although it does occasionally occur, it's essentially anecdotal. Therefore, just based on what we know, that population is probably at minimal risk. So therefore, if we're going to have concerns about screening and putting our resources where it's going to do the most good, I would argue the 12 and below age is probably at minimal risk based on everything we know from the natural history. And even from COVID, what we seem to be seeing is a tendency as you get younger and younger to have milder and milder presentation of disease. So I think it probably is a fairly reasonable cutoff. As far as the second question, as far as the timing return into play, I think you could make an argument that do we need to allow for somewhat less of a time? Is two weeks too much? I would certainly argue that you could make a case that a week to 10 days, and especially in somebody who's asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, that may be a more reasonable time frame. I'd certainly be interested to hear what the other members of the panel would think on that one. Yeah, anybody, either you had anything to add? I I really appreciate that, Steve. That really helps me as far as when you're talking about the 12 to 22-year-old block, as far as the sudden cardiac death, that definitely makes a lot more sense to me of using that cutoff there for sure. And I would definitely agree with Steve. And the the only thing that I would probably add is that I try to, again, going back to the shared decision-making is inform the, you know, on these patients that are in these gray zones, right? Or you have the very athletic 12-year-old, 11-year-old, you know, wherever that gray zone is, try to tell everybody that you have to take every patient as an individual. And it's not always easy to just lump everybody into one category. And, And that's what I try to explain to the pediatricians too. We've, we've done a few local talks, sometimes paired up with our infectious disease colleagues, sometimes just as pediatric cardiologists. And, and I think that's the thing that I try to stress the most is that we do have these categories, or if you look at the papers that have been published, you know, there's different algorithms to help categorize them, but it's not always so black and white and there's a lot of gray zone. And so you just have to kind of use your skills that you've learned in medical school and in practice to kind of use your best judgment on which of those patients that may otherwise be less than 12 or less than 15, but that you feel like should get additional evaluation. So I just try to stress that point. How about the thought that what was being seen may not truly be how we define myocarditis, that the picture looks similar, but there's significant variability of direct myocyte invasion. For the cases that you've seen, what are you all finding clinically in any of your advanced studies? We'll start with William. Okay. So I think there's a lot to unpack here. So myocarditis, just in case a lot of our listeners are are not cardiac trained, myocarditis by definition is the inflammatory disease of the myocardium 
diagnosed by a combination of histologic and immunologic criteria. The gold standard for diagnosis is usually tissue evaluation from a biopsy via cardiac cath. So the biopsy typically shows evidence of inflammatory cellular infiltrate, predominantly lymphocytes, with adjacent myocyte injury not explained by other causes like coronary artery disease, et cetera. Now, the question regarding COVID causing true myocarditis comes from some studies published looking at autopsy specimens that reported evidence of myocardial injury from other causes such as macro or microvascular thrombi that doesn't fit the purest definition of myocarditis. So what adds another layer of complexity is that the autopsies were performed mostly on geriatric patients. And just like a lot of pediatric cardiology, we have to extrapolate adult data which we know children are not just small adults. Luckily, most of the children, and definitely the ones that I've seen, even those that are hospitalized typically recover and therefore are not getting autopsies. And so without an autopsy, the other option to obtain a biopsy is to do a cardiac cath, which we currently are not doing, and nor do I know of any place that is doing that. So I would be curious to see if, if any of our other members' institutions are doing that. And so right now, we rely on evidence from cardiac MRI using criteria called the Lake Louise criteria to help diagnose acute myocarditis. And what the MRI looks for is myocardial edema or injury as part of of that criteria. We here uh, have not developed a specific protocol for when or how frequently to obtain cardiac MRI on all patients, just regardless if they had COVID. And mainly that's because of the lack of understanding on what a finding may mean and how we should approach that patient. Clinically, I can say that most of our patients that we're seeing are recovering and the ones that we are doing MRI or a cardiopulmonary exercise test, you know, most of those studies have normalized. So I would also be curious to hear from what both Steve and Kendra's institutions are doing. Well, certainly we have done very few MRIs on this population, the exception being obviously a Miss C population, which we tend to do MRIs on. But I would agree with everything that William said. I'm just not sure that we know what the significance of these myocardial findings are. We have no control population to know what is truly normal in this population. Fortunately, we may eventually get some answers because there are a couple of longitudinal studies that are in the works through NIH looking at COVID patients in general through the PRISM study and in the MIS-C population through the MUSIC study. Hopefully, those will give us some data eventually, but that's going to be months, if not years down the line. So I think absent any hard data, we should be very careful about drawing any significant conclusion from isolated MRI findings in the absence of compelling clinical data that a child has active evidence of myocarditis. Yeah, I would agree with that. The patients that we've been doing MRIs on, we have an ongoing study at Lurie Children's and following MRI findings on patients who had the MISC, but we're not routinely obtaining cardiac MRIs on pediatric patients who have coronavirus unless there are other findings that are concerning. And even then, the MRI is not our standard first go-to test for these patients. 
As we move forward, being a year out from the earliest cases of COVID, knowing more now about how this virus affects kids, but still realizing we don't have all the answers from a long-term perspective, how should we approach young athletes who have been COVID positive and guiding them back to play? And we'll start with Kendra, and why don't we tackle things by going through kind of stratifying things a little bit. So we'll start off with the asymptomatic mild case, defining a mild case as mild upper respiratory symptoms, maybe fever for a day or two but nothing major otherwise. And so is there any workup needed? What are your feelings from a cardiac standpoint in regards to return to play? And I know we've touched a little bit on this. Should they resume normal activity right away or should we be using the guidance from the adults with the five-step, seven-day gradual return to play progression that's been recommended? Sure. For the patients with mild or asymptomatic coronavirus, we have been working with our local pediatricians and in general, those patients get cleared by the pediatricians. And what we've been working with them to do is to do a typical physical examination, also to make sure that they're asking cardiac specific questions, like have the patients been experiencing chest pain, shortness of breath that's out of proportion to their usual breathing with exercise, any new onset of heart racing or palpitations, any fainting or feeling like they're going to faint. And if they don't answer in the positive to any of those, they don't have any of those symptoms and their physical exam is normal and they had a mild case, we've been clearing them to return to sports without the graduated return program that was outlined. As far as some mild cases, the only thing that I would say is that we have given the green light to the pediatricians, again, in the over 12 age to get an EKG if they've had any fever especially if they've had any fever for more than 24 to 48 hours. Originally, we weren't going to go that way, but we got a lot of pushback from the general pediatricians about a significant degree of discomfort about doing, quotes, nothing. And it seemed like a reasonable compromise. I've got to admit, I'm not sure that there's any good rationale to it and that it adds any utility to doing anything beyond what Kendra had just stated. Uh, just to echo what Steve had said, we actually also had that set up with our general pediatricians that we didn't say that they had to have testing, but if people were uncomfortable sending kids back to play without it, that we would support their ordering an EKG and we would be happy to interpret it for them. Again, I'm not sure with the asymptomatic patient what that's added to our clinical care, but it does offer some amount of reassurance to pediatricians and parents. And I would ask for both of you with that, as far as allowing the pediatricians to go ahead and get an EKG, as far as doing some screening and looking at that, you know, if we're talking about just before that it's not maybe really myocarditis, what are you guys looking for? Is there anything specific on an EKG that you would expect to be finding in these kids after COVID or just are, are we looking at it and just saying, oh, there is a finding now? I'm just curious as far as kind of going down that approach and saying it's okay to get an EKG, but what specifically are we looking for on EKG and EKG criteria? Well, I think certainly if there is evidence of abnormalities that would make you concerned about myocarditis, either ST segment T wave changes, any other changes that might give you any evidence of a myopericardial inflammatory picture, 
that would be what I would be concerned about. I got to admit, I think the yield on this is going to be vanishingly low from the diagnosis of a myocarditis. I'm more concerned is that we're going to have the same problem that we always have with screening EKGs is we're going to pick up a lot of nonspecific findings that are going to turn out to be red herrings, but are going to launch us down, unfortunately, inevitable tract of doing additional testing on those kids before we can end up then allowing them hopefully to return to play. And I guess that's kind of what I was getting at there is kind of that slippery slope a little bit there is when we start doing these tests and are we just looking to look? Are we looking because we're we're hoping to find something that actually would ultimately change our management in there? And that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at and try and see what you guys thought about that. Just even ask general pediatricians who don't routinely get EKGs, like how comfortable they are with interpreting them versus then are they going to either request a cardiology consult or send the patient in if there's, you know, one small abnormality that we otherwise may think is an okay change. It's difficult. And it goes back to another debate for another podcast, even a whole episode on using ECGs as a return to play screening. And so I think it, again, adds another layer of complexity. So how about we give this scenario that we have a kid that's had fever for four to five days, had more significant symptoms, more pronounced symptoms, a case that really wiped them out, but not bad enough to require hospitalization. So where do we stand there? The so-called moderate illness case, what workup should we consider, if any, and what guidance should we be giving for a return to play? And we'll, we'll start with Steve. I I think this is tough. I think at a minimum, as as I said, if they're over 12, I would at a minimum get an EKG, although for all the reasons that we've just stated, I've got to admit, I'm not sure of its utility. And I'd be interested to see what William and Kendra have to say. Most of the kids that you just describe as the quotes moderate, I would say a significant minority, if not a small majority of those have ended up getting admitted at least briefly to our hospital. The degree of sickness that required to be seen in order to get admitted with COVID is relatively modest, at least at our institution. They're not usually in there long, but they're usually in there. And so we have some period of time to take a look at them, look at their EKGs, look and see whether they have any cardiac abnormalities. So I think the majority of them get some degree of screening anyway. I don't have a great deal of problems with the ones that aren't admitted also at least having some screening, especially if you're relatively active athletes and fall into the late middle school, high school range. I I don't think I would get high sensitivity proponents or necessarily echocardiogram without some clinical evidence that there was cardiac involvement. I would argue that this branch point of the algorithms that have been published sometimes is the most difficult patient to treat. There's a lot of gray zone depending on their age and depending on symptoms and depending on how active they are. And again, this is where a lot of just kind of conversations with the family and the patient regarding what they've had. And, and you know, at the same time, you don't want to do too much and utilize all the resources, but at the same time, you don't want to do too little and miss something. And so typically, you know, the moderate patients, definitely the high school varsity level athletes that had moderate symptoms with, you know, maybe fever longer than four days, maybe have some lingering shortness of breath, and they make it all the way into the pediatric cardiology clinic, you know, I will probably do more evaluation than the patient that just had mild symptoms. But this branch point has always been the most difficult one and, and the one that has 
led to the most discussions, even with other providers, other pediatricians and other pediatric cardiologists in my divisions that call and kind of say, like, what would you do in this case? And I think this one is just a tough one. Would it matter to you, because certainly I think it would to me, whether or not that patient was still having any symptoms at all at the time that they came into clinic to see me? Oh, 100%. And the, but the majority of the patients that are coming in to see me are coming in because they've been referred because they still are having symptoms. So I would say the majority of patients that finally make it into our clinic usually do have some kind of lingering symptoms. I am usually very reassured that if a patient comes in, even if they were a little bit sick and had say they are completely back to normal, I usually feel better. And I will say of the patients that have come in with what we would consider moderate symptoms, and I have done an evaluation with an echo or an EKG, I have yet to find anybody have findings that would be concerning such as like a large pericardial fusion or dysfunction or coronary aneurysm. So I also, as I think we all are getting a little more experience with these, are starting to have a little bit more, not even evidence, but just kind of our own experience to help us guide with some of the future decisions. I agree completely with William that this is the most challenging group of patients because it's not always clear what you should do for them and how aggressive to be in their testing. It is very tempting when they end up in a cardiologist's office and they're pretty worried about it to go down the route of testing. I have yet to find significant abnormalities in cardiac testing on the patients who have no symptoms at the time that they're seeing me and had sort of a more mild type of moderate infection. In the decision tree that we're using, which speaks a little bit to what Steve was talking about, we've defined moderate as no hospitalization. And if you do have those mild to moderate patients who get admitted for observation overnight, in the decision-making tree that we've created with working with our general pediatricians, that bumps them to moderate to severe, which is a different path. And I think over time, we may be able to rethink that a little bit, but it does get confusing working with these patients. But again, I want to echo what William said, that I have yet to find serious abnormalities, you know, maybe some isolated ectopy on Holters and patients who had some complaints of palpitations, but I haven't found anything severe at this point in that group of patients. Then we'll get to the final category, which probably is a, at least a little bit more clear, I maybe. The kid who was hospitalized, the kid diagnosed with Miss C, you know, what type of cardiac evaluation is being recommended there and, and what recommendations should we be making for return to play in that group as well? And, and we'll start with William. Yeah, I actually think this category may be the easiest category of patients to treat because, you know, nobody's going to fault you for doing all the tests and everything. And actually, a lot of these kids come in so ill that part of the MISC evaluation, they're going to be getting labs such as a troponins or a BNP. And if those are elevated, then it really kind of makes your decision making fairly easy. But at the same time, these kids are also, before they're discharged, I would say 99. I mean, if we miss one of them, then you know, we shouldn't be, but they're plugged in with our consult team before we're getting discharged and they actually will follow up in our MISC clinic. So that's actually a collaborative clinic that we created here at Children's in St. Louis with rheumatology, because also a lot of them are going home on steroids that need to be weaned off. So they follow up with us. And again, this is no real science behind it, but we're following them at about the two week discharge and the six week discharge. 
And then because we are also part of the PRISM study, which Steve mentioned earlier, we're going to follow them again at the six months and the 12 months at minimum. And so these patients, I sometimes think are fairly easier because if they have any type of troponin leak or elevated BNP, like nobody's, you know, I think everybody would be repeating those studies, making sure all the labs have cleared and then following the myocarditis pathway, which is, you know, restriction from play for three to six months before going back. And then before allowing them to go back to play, getting a cardiac MRI or getting a, a exercise stress test, et cetera. So in my mind, sometimes these are almost patients that can be put on autopilot because you're going to do everything for them because we don't know how concerned we should be. Maybe in the future when more studies come out, yeah, and we realize that the troponin leak or whatever is not from true myocarditis, and maybe we can be a little more lax. But for now, I think you know these patients are definitely getting a thorough evaluation frequently. And then Steve or Kendra, but also I, I do want someone to touch on what exactly the PRISM study is. And the reason why I say that is that this month in our podcast, we're highlighting the PRISM Sports Medicine Group, which is Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine. So not to confuse our listeners, because we've been talking about that a lot this month on our podcasts. What's the PRISM study for cardiology? The first thing I would agree with, I think William summed it up 100%. We do absolutely exactly what he just said. We are treating these kids as if they have a myocarditis. So and the MIS-C kids, as far as we're concerned, they can go down the exact same pathway as any of our other myocarditis kids and are followed up with our heart failure group as if they've had myocarditis and get the exact same long-term follow-up as far as exercise testing, MRI, et cetera. Will be correct me about it with the PRISM study because I'm less involved with that than music, but PRISM is basically looking, is a, it's a longitudinal study looking at the long-term outcomes of everybody who has come in with COVID in the pediatric population, as opposed to the music, which is a protocol that's going through the pediatric heart network. Both are being NIH funded, but music is primarily just looking at COVID, and primarily the main mover of that is Jane Newberger at Boston Children's. PRISM itself stands for Pediatric Research Immune Network on SARS-CoV-2 and MISC, and it's a non-interventional, prospective, multi-center observational cohort study, as Steve mentioned, funded by the NIH. And its goal is to assess the short and long-term clinical outcomes of immune responses after SARS-CoV-2 infection and or MISC. And a lot of it has to do with COVID-related death, rehospitalization, other major complications such as end organ dysfunction. And, and it's great because with these patients, we're getting a lot of immunologic studies. We're getting a lot of pulmonary function tests that will hopefully answer a lot of these unknowns that we've mentioned today. There's another one that is the host is out of Toronto Sick Kids. It's part of the International Kawasaki's Disease Registry where they're actually looking at these patients and how they relate to Kawasaki's disease, which is a whole nother issue, which is another multi-institutional study that's being done. So that's a, a good kind of segue to our final part here as we near the end of our discussion today. You know, I'd love to get perspective from each of you where you think our next steps are with COVID in athletes from a cardiac perspective. And you guys have referred to several studies that are ongoing right now, but any other future studies or updated guidance that you're aware of, any upcoming research? And Kendra, feel free to, to chime in to start. To me, when I think of this and all the studies that are ongoing and really how early we are in our understanding of coronavirus and how it's going to impact pediatric patients long-term 
and their sports participation. I think of this as something that's in late infancy or maybe early toddlerhood, and that we really need to keep our eyes and ears open for new findings and a better understanding of what this is going to mean for our pediatric patients, not just in the short term, but in the medium term and the long term outcomes. Yeah, I would agree. I I think that the ability to collect long-term data is going to be crucial. It's sort of like the the Clinton administration there with their line, I never let a good crisis go to waste. Having the the funding to set up these longitudinal uh, studies to hopefully collect data from the get-go in a rational way, I think will go a long way to helping us a year from now or a year and a half from now, knowing what the true risks are and what we really truly need to be doing. And then finally, a feature of our podcast that we have is called the Pearl of the Podcast. It's an opportunity for our guests to give their final take-home point, something they want our listeners to put into their memory banks about what we've discussed today. And we'll get a pearl from each of you, and we'll start with Kendra. Again, I just think it's really important to realize that we are early in our understanding of this. And as we gather more information, our guidance may change, our recommendations may change. And we need to make sure that we're on top of things so that we understand what's happening and what's changing and can give the best advice and guidance to our patients and their families. William? I would say from a provider or clinician standpoint that it's okay to be overwhelmed with all of the data coming out and use your resources wisely and don't hesitate to call. And it's okay to tell your patient, like, I don't know what the best thing we should do here, but let's talk to other people and make sure you're not missing anything. And from a athlete or a student or non-provider standpoint, don't hide your symptoms. You know, you're not going to get in trouble if you have COVID. We just want to make sure that you're safe before going back to play. And you're not on the news because you collapse during your sport. And then Steve? My comment is almost a corollary of what William said, is that as pediatric cardiologists, I think we have to remember that perhaps our biggest role in COVID may be one of supplying nonspecific reassurance for both the families of the patients involved and probably equally important the primary physicians who are responsible for taking care of them so that we have to expect that we're probably going to do more than we need to and that will change over time but in the short term i think it's important to realize that that's our role great stuff today i'd like to thank dr william orr dr kendra ward and dr steve paradon for spending some of their busy lives with us today on the podcast and providing some fantastic insight and things to think about as we continue navigating COVID and its effect on the hearts of our young athletes. Be sure to check out all of our episodes through our episode library available at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. We always appreciate your feedback and comments and you taking a quick minute to leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. It helps us get the word out and more visible to others who may be interested in our podcast and our topics. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.